This is a podcast from Seven Vineyard. At the moment, we're talking uh, about the book of Acts. What somebody asked me to do a series on a book rather than just kind of jump from one book to the next. Um, and so we decided to do it on the book of Acts this year, and uh, we're, we're into our third episode today. And um, last week, um, I suggested that the disciples of Jesus in the start of the book of Acts were expecting that Jesus would lead a revolution that would restore the kingdom to Israel. Okay, in Acts 1.6, it's plain and simple. All right, this is what Luke says. He says, then they gathered around him and asked him, that is, the disciples asked Jesus, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom of Israel to Israel? Which means, are you going to kick out the Romans and establish a new kingdom that is with a king? We know what a kingdom is, right? We are in part of the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland. And they were saying, are you going to establish the United Kingdom of Israel. Are you going to do that? And are you going to be king? And also, are we going to be your deputies? Are we going to be your ambassadors? Are we going to be part of the governing body of this new nation? But then, strangely, Jesus disappears. Really strange circumstances. Uh, Luke says that he was taken up before their very eyes, and then two angels told them that Jesus would reappear in the same way that he had disappeared. Anyone else think that's strange? I just, I just want to ask you to take your Christian glasses off for a moment. That generally readily accepts the virgin birth, angels appearing at the birth of Jesus, um, and Jesus disappearing up behind a cloud. Just take your Christian spectacles off for a moment and go, that's strange. Okay? Are we agreed? Uh, so it's a strange thing that happened. These things don't happen very often. I've said before, now, like take my wife for instance, if she walked out into that courtyard and floated up into the sky and was hidden by a cloud, I'd be very upset for starters. But nevertheless, it would also be a very strange event. This is what we need to do. We need to understand that what these things might have looked like at that time. Now, from our perspective, it is obviously clear that Jesus didn't reappear, okay, and didn't return like the angels said he would, unless anyone has got any news on that. No? Still, we all agree, Jesus hasn't yet returned in physical form in the same way that he disappeared. So that hasn't happened yet. But from the disciples' perspective, um, it would seem that they expected him to reappear again fairly soon after he disappeared. Why do I say that? Well, between the resurrection and this moment when he disappears into the sky, there are more than 12 examples just in the New Testament of Jesus disappearing and reappearing. 12. And over the course of those uh, 50 days, um, there appears to be about 500 people who have seen him appear or disappear. So there's been this period of 50 days when Jesus has appeared and disappeared, appeared and disappeared. What do the disciples think? Well, they think that Jesus is going to restore the kingdom to Israel. So I suspect, and I'm going to postulate to you, that Jesus actually, sorry, that the disciples actually were expecting Jesus, Jesus to reappear quite quickly. And I would also add that you need to look at the letters of Paul to understand that his whole life, from the moment he had his Damascus Road experience, was orientated on the premise that Jesus was going to return in his lifetime. He talks about it loads. So just go and read Paul's letters if you want to kind of see that for yourselves. So there was this massive expectation that Jesus was going to return. I'm going to return to restore the kingdom to Israel. Now, I think I've argued that given that, the disciples were looking 
to prepare for Jesus' return, which is where I kind of draw a parallel with our present election. In Acts 1, it looks like the disciples, and I said this last week, if you didn't listen to my talk last week, it looks like they even prepared for government by establishing a council of 12 and a community of 120 people, which is the basic unit of political power in Israel. Even today, the parliament, which they call the Nezir, has 120 MPs, or they call them MKs, and they have 12 permanent committees responsible for legislation and the scrutiny of government. Okay, this is the structure of political power in Israel. And this is what we're seeing in Acts 1 and 2. The disciples, they, they restore um, the 12 by, because Judas died by appointing Matthias. And that council of 12 was possible to elect because there were 120 people who wanted to form a community with a council. So it's a bit like a parish council. So there's a basic unit of government. These disciples were doing their best to prepare for Jesus to return, to become king of Israel, and gain all of that political power. Now, at the moment, uh, in the UK, if you're not listening to this in the UK, the Labour Party have a commanding lead in the British polls, and they are preparing for government as we speak. Okay, a lot of work is going in to prepare the Labour Party for government. Why? Because the polls are saying they're going to win. Something similar is happening with the disciples here. In Luke 24, verse 50 to 53, it says this. Now, this is, this is describing the, the events around the ascension, but in Luke's prior volume. So Luke wrote Luke and Acts. Okay, that's volume one and volume two. So Luke 24, 50 to 53. When Jesus had led them out to the vicinity of Bethany, he lifted up his hands and blessed them. And whilst he was blessing them, he left them and was taken up into heaven. And then they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And they stayed continually at the temple, praising God. The focus on this little excerpt here is on the words praising God. I'll come back to that in a second. Just to say, this is, this is the second time when Luke records what happens prior to... Well, rather, it, this is the second time that Luke describes the ascension of Jesus. Okay, so we see it in Acts 1, but we're also seeing it in Luke 24. All right, that's what's going on here. But look at those words, praising God. So for 10 days after Jesus had disappeared, the 12 disciples, that's the council, and the 120 strong community that they led gathered at the temple every day praising God. Now in Greek, the word for praise is eulogio, from which we get the word eulogy. Now a few years ago, five years ago, I, I gave a eulogy at my father's funeral. It was a wonderful thing to do. I really enjoyed doing it. It was very cathartic. It was an opportunity for me to speak well of my father and to highlight all one of the wonderful things he was to us and did during his lifetime. It was a real privilege to do it. I spoke well of my father. I praised my father in public. And that's what's going on here. They are eulogizing Jesus, okay? And they are speaking well of him. They are celebrating him and telling other people how great they think Jesus is. Now, David just led us in a similar experience where we praised Jesus for who he was. We were eulogizing Jesus. Now, also, what you'll hear in the next few months is lots of people eulogizing Rishi Sunak and Keir Starmer, because they're the only two guys who are poten the potential prime minister at the next election. They're going to speak well of them. They're going to praise them. They're going to tell us what great things they have done and what great track record they have. And we're going to choose to believe, well, we may not vote for either of those, but we might, we might hear lots of eulogies about these people. It's not about just when they die. It's about telling people how great these leaders are. And so 
when this community of 120 stayed continually at the temple, they were eulogizing God. They were eulogizing Jesus. And they're getting ready for Jesus' return. They're telling everyone what a great leader Jesus is. And they're celebrating his return, his imminent return to Jerusalem as king. Now, they've been here before, of course. Okay, when Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey, people eulogized Jesus then. They took palms, they cut leaves off branches, and they literally laid them on the ground to form a mat for Jesus on his donkey to enter Jerusalem. Now, where did that end? Well, Jesus was murdered by the authorities. But, of course, Jesus has come back to life. He's come back to life. He's been resurrected. He's not even just come back to life. He's not just been resuscitated. He's been resurrected to a whole new, different way of life where he appears and disappears uh, at his own wish. And he transports himself across distances without walking there. He can appear from here uh, and, and appear in Bath a moment later. You know, there's this strangeness about Jesus, um, incredible otherworldly realities. And so the disciples are now excited that Jesus has told them that he's going to return. He's going to return, they think, to seize power in Jerusalem. And so he's down, they're down at the temple eulogizing about Jesus. Now Luke starts Acts 2, which is the chapter we're focusing on today, uh, with a date marker, the day of Pentecost. Now just to be clear, the day of Pentecost means one thing to Christians, it means another to Jews. Okay, and let's talk about what it meant to the Jews because that's what this is talking about. So when the day of Pentecost came, which I'll tell you in a minute was a Jewish festival, they were all together in one place and suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. So the disciples are expecting Jesus to return and to lead a political revolution, but instead something otherworldly occurs. Luke says that a mysterious and violent firestorm starts blowing and what seems to be tongues of fire resting on each person. Now Luke is a historian, okay? He's an academic and he knows that this isn't the first time that tongues of fire show up out of nowhere and destroy, excuse me, don't destroy what they're touching. Let me just say that again for clarity. Lucas in the story, and he knows that this isn't the first time that fire shows up, a firestorm shows up and doesn't consume or burn the people that it is touching. Okay. You see, in the Hebrew Old Testament Bible, this happened quite a few times. And it, it happened to signify two things, and Luke would have known this. First is the presence of Yahweh. Yahweh is the name the Jews give to God. Okay. And the second is the formation of a temple, a place where Yahweh resides. So Yahweh, as we will know, some of us will be familiar with this, some more than others, Yahweh is present to Moses, you know, what, thousands of years before, you know, back when, when there's a burning bush. You remember this story? You might have been, learned it at Sunday school, but the bush isn't consumed, and a voice speaks out of the bush in the language that Moses understands, and tells him that he's standing on holy ground, which, friends, means that he's implying that it's like a temple. Because where God's presence is, it's, they used to call that a temple or a tabernacle. Um, and then Yahweh promises on that occasion to empower Moses to lead the Israelites, which by then had become a nation. They were a family descended from Abraham. But in the time, the 400 years that they were in Egypt, they grew into a numerous people, millions of people strong. They were a nation, uh, a nation without a land. 
and they were held in captivity in slavery by the Egyptians. And the, the voice of Yahweh says to Moses, I'm going to lead you, and I'm going to lead you to lead the Israelites out of slavery into a nation with their own land. And, and Moses does this and leads a several million strong community of people to a place called Mount Sinai, which is in the Sinai Peninsula, not even what you would call Israel today. It's still in Egypt. And there's this powerful wind fanning a terrifying wildfire. Now, we've all seen pictures of wildfires. Has anyone actually been in a wildfire? No, we don't tend to have very much in the UK. But you've seen it in Australia and California and, and certainly in the south of France and Spain. Wildfires where the wind whips up the fire and it just consumes land. In fact, we were in Italy a few a couple of years back. We drove down a motorway. There was a wildfire on the hill. And, and the smoke and the colour and the heat, you could feel it. You know, it was just incredible. It was intense. It was an intense experience. And this is what was happening on Mount Sinai. And Moses goes up to Mount Sinai. And what happens? He's not consumed. He's not blackened. He's not, he doesn't choke with the smoke. This is a moment in Jewish history that they recognise as God's presence. And that God's presence means that the temple is on top of Mount Sinai. And then... Later, when a mobile temple under Moses' instruction is built, the tabernacle, it's like a big tent. And again, another firestorm appears over this tent to signify God's presence with the tent. And then when Solomon eventually builds a permanent temple in Jerusalem, when they settle in that land, another firestorm shows up, signifying that God's presence is with them. So for the Jews, this moment on Mount Sinai is indicative of God's presence with them. And... Um, to be honest with you, we as Brits will find this hard to understand, but if you're an American, you'll get this. This moment on Mount Sinai was the moment of formation of Israel as a nation. It was their declaration of independence. Our American friends declared independence from the, the ruthless King George and the Brits uh, back, when was it? 1776? Is that right? No one knows. Yes, someone's nodding there. Thank you. And they declared their independence. And Americans see that as the moment of formation of their nation. And the Jews see this moment on Mount Sinai as the moment of their formation as a nation. And so they celebrate it. Every generation since has celebrated it. And they called it Shaviot. Um, and Shaviot occurs 50 days after, um, I was going to say Easter, but let's just not mix metaphors there, after um, Passover. And Passover was the, it was the moment when, without going into detail, uh, God eventually uh, released the Jews from their oppression and the Israelites from their oppression in Egypt. And between then and this, this uh, moment on Mount Sinai, 50 days passed. And 50 days in Greek, because this would have been written in Greek, is the word Pentecost. So this is a Jewish festival celebrating the formation of Israel as a nation. So when Luke says, when the day of Pentecost came, okay, don't think Pentecostal church. Don't think signs and wonders. Don't think speaking in tongues and prophecy. Don't think about that. Think about the day of the declaration of independence of the Israeli nation. The formation of, the, of, the, of Israel as a nation. That's what was happening on the day of Pentecost when the fire touched the disciples. That's what they were celebrating. And in the 50 days between Passover, when Jesus, you know, just before Jesus died, and Pentecost, all of these people from all over the known world would have been coming to Jerusalem to celebrate Shaviot, or Pentecost. And that's what was happening. Now, these people, it was, it was, it was um, the way in which they expressed this celebration was people from every nation all over the world 
would travel to Jerusalem bringing the first fruits of their winter crops. Now, the winter crops back then would have been figs, olives, dates, grapes, pomegranate, wheat, and barley. So it sounds like they were going to have a party. Because, of course, they didn't just place these food, this food on the altar. They obviously feasted as well. And it was a vibrant and joyful time for Jews, remembering with thankfulness the formation of their nation and the provision of this land flowing with milk and honey. Now, according to a well-known Jewish midrash, and I would remind you that a Jewish midrash, if you don't know, is a commentary on the Hebrew Old Testament. So our Old Testament, our, I don't know why I possess it, you know what I mean, the Christian Old Testament, I've got my Bible with me, that first four-fifths of the Bible, that's also known as the Hebrew Bible, okay? And the midrash is a Jewish commentary on the Hebrew Bible. And it offers this interesting perspective. It's just a perspective, okay? But it offers this interesting perspective on Israel's special relationship with Yahweh. So going back to the origin story, going back to Mount Sinai, the story goes in the Midrash that Yahweh originally offered a covenant relationship to every nation on earth. But none of them would accept that covenant without first asking what it was about. After hearing the detail, this is, uh, this is a, let me just be clear, this is a, this is a tradition, it is a, a mythological tradition, this is a commentary, if you like. But with, after hearing the detail, each nation had its excuse for not participating in this special covenant with Yahweh. However, Israel, under Moses, did not ask any questions, but chose to trust Yahweh without knowing the detail of the covenant. Each Pentecost, Jews reaffirmed their commitment to this special covenant with Yahweh at Pentecost. And this is what they would have been doing after Jesus ascended into heaven. So when Luke says that the day of Pentecost came and describes a scene not unlike what happened to Moses at Mount Sinai. So when Luke says that the day of Pentecost came and fire came and touched the disciples' heads, he was describing a scene that was just like what happened when God's presence turned up at, the, at Mount Sinai, at the tabernacle, and at the temple. You know that something special and symbolic is happening. The, the trouble is, as Christians, we're raised with these stories and they become so familiar with us that, that we don't realise the impact of them. You know, if you were coming to this first time, and some of you may be coming to this first time, you've never heard this before, you might get this better than anyone else in the room that's grown up as a Christian. But what's different about Luke's account of what happens on Pentecost in AD, let's say 33, because historians aren't entirely sure exactly which date it was, is that this group of people were touched by a firestorm and they started speaking in the languages of every people group across the world. Don't miss the significance of that. Let me read it to you. Acts 2, 5 to 8. Now there were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. Every nation under heaven? When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment, the firestorm, that is, because each one heard their own language being spoken. So Jews from all over the known world were hearing their own languages being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all these people speaking Galileans? Which is just a region of, of what we now know as Israel. Then how is it that each of us hears them in our own native language? Just referring back to the Midrash and this account of God offering the covenant to lots, all the nations of the earth and only Israel responding. What's happening here is a reversal of that story. Because what happened on Mount Sinai is that instead of the firestorm of Yahweh's presence just touching one people group, one ethnic group, 
on the day of Pentecost, all ethnic groups, all Jews from the ethnic groups across the whole world heard their own language being spoken. Luke records a speech by Peter, one of his disciples, quoting the Jewish prophet Joel in Acts 2, 17 and 18. In the last days, this is Peter speaking, in the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. And even on those, my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. So the disciples are waiting to hear, sorry, they're waiting for Jesus to reappear and lead them in a political revolution. They are waiting for power, but not political power. They get some otherworldly power. And this otherworldly power, and just to, just to put the Pentecostal church and our charismatic church to one side, it wasn't about healings and prophecy and, 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 and kind of words of knowledge and stuff like that. When we talk about Pentecost, what's the principal thing that happens on the day of Pentecost? They gain the ability to speak all the languages of the known world. That's all that happens. Because if you remember, the disciples already had some supernatural powers to heal people anyway, before Jesus died. They didn't gain those powers at Pentecost. They were already happening. What happened on the day of Pentecost was they gained the ability to speak all the languages of the known world. And when we say um, all the nations, we're really talking about ethnic groups because nation is quite a modern concept. It's a more recent concept. We're talking about ethnic groups. It says in Acts 2.5, now they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews. And get this, it wasn't Gentiles. So again, this isn't about Gentiles, which are all the other people that weren't Jews in the world, we're talking about Jews from every known people group across the world. It was the biggest festival of the Jewish calendar, one that drew, drew Jews from every nation on earth, and really we need to say ethnic group. So from every ethnic group. Suddenly Jews from every ethnic group on earth are hearing about Jesus the Messiah. Am I the only one that thinks that's amazing? Why is that happening? Because they've suddenly got this miraculous ability to speak all the languages of the known world. This is what happened. This is what happened. And I want to add to you that often people talk about this being the birth of the church. And by that, they mean the Christian church, the Western Christian church. Let's just put this out of our minds for a minute. Because at this point, there's no talk of Gentiles involvement. This is just the Jews. And of course, Jesus was the Jewish Messiah. He'd come for the Jews. He was the Messiah, the, one that, the anointed one that would lead the revolution and that would establish the kingdom of Israel and kick out the Romans. This was for the Jews in every known language. Jews from every known nation across the world were in Jerusalem. Remember how Luke says that the disciples were eulogizing about Jesus? Well, before the day of Pentecost, they were eulogizing about Jesus in Aramaic, which would have been their own language. After the day of Pentecost, they're eulogizing about Jesus in every known language of the world. There's a big difference. That's the miracle that happened on the day of Pentecost. And Luke wants us to know that the disciples' political movement to restore the kingdom of Israel under Jesus' leadership had suddenly spread to every ethnic group on earth. Do you remember what Jesus said to the disciples before he disappeared? Acts 1.8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And he could have said, if he was really kind, and what's going to happen, guys, is you're all going to be able to speak all the languages of the known world. 
and you're going to be able to eulogize about me in all the, lone, all the known languages of the world. But he says this instead. He says, uh, and by the way, I, if I'd written this, I would have said that. But Luke says, but you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. That's what's going on on Pentecost. Peter must have been mindful of this as he tries to persuade every Jew from every ethnic group across the world that Jesus is the Messiah, the rightful King of Israel, descended from King David himself. You can read it. It's all there in Acts 2. So in Acts 2, what Luke does is Luke shifts the focus from the local community of Jews in Judea and Galilee, and he moves it to every ethnic group across the world. And what we see here is that it is possible for one story to unite people from every ethnic group across the world. We see that it's possible for human beings to be united by one story without assimilating and destroying the diversity of culture and languages across the known world. And friends, this isn't Christianity at this point. We're not calling this Christianity, we're calling this Judaism. Because these people were already Jews from across the known world. See, they'd spread to every nation. And they'd, they'd become able to speak the languages, and generation after generation, so much so that if you're an Ethiopian Jew, you speak the language of Ethiopia. You know, if there had been Jews from ancient Britain there, they would have speaking, speaking, spoken the, the language of ancient Britain. That there is a possible, it is possible in humanity to unite around one story and not destroy the diversity of our cultures and languages. That's what we're seeing on the day of Pentecost. And I think sometimes we, if we don't, if we don't take off our Christian spectacles, sometimes we miss that. So, and the danger is, is that the, the Christian church becomes homogenous. It becomes not diverse. It becomes, you know, just, just heteronormal. It, it just kind of, it looks, we all look the same. Because birds of a feather flock together. Well, right on the day of Pentecost, that wasn't the case. There were people from every nation. In Acts 2, we see that the Spirit of God unites all ethnic groups of the world in simple acts of love and community. Because what happens after this? Well, in Acts 2, 44 to 47, it says this, all the believers, and I'll just want to add in parenthesis, all the believers, Jews, not Christians, Jews who believed that Jesus was the Messiah, that's what he's referring to, all the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God, eulogizing God, and enjoying the favor of all people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. So this is a movement within Judaism. So all these people from across the known world, they, they receive this story that Jesus is the Messiah. They gladly embrace it with their hearts. And there's this huge expectation that Jesus is going to return and lead them to establish the kingdom of Israel. What, what, what an amazing time. They must have been so excited. This is going to happen. Now, if you're a Labour supporter, you might be feeling like this. It's going to happen. Keir's going to become prime minister. It's going to be glorious. We're already celebrating. That's what they were celebrating. And, of course, they had this thing in common. They received Jesus as the Messiah. So they're celebrating. They're living life together. They're embracing this reality, expecting that Jesus is going to return and lead them lead them to establish the kingdom of Israel. No wonder they were excited. And I imagine that those people from all the different corners of the world were happily welcomed into the homes of the locals. So the local Jews who received Jesus as the Messiah and were expecting that he would return, they're just saying, stay with us. Come and stay in our house. 
We're going to eat together, drink together. We're going to be celebrating. We're going to be talking about Jesus. This is a momentum that is building. This is a movement that is only going to grow. And this is what happens on the day of Pentecost. This is what we see in Acts 2. And I don't think that we can completely grasp the momentum that existed at this point. But let me, friends, let me be clear. At this point, this is not the church. This is a Jewish movement. It's a Jewish movement of reform. It's an expectation of the Messiah. This is an entirely Jewish story. And we'll talk more about how Gentiles become part of that story. But for now, this is the story that Luke wants us to understand, animated and inspired by the firestorm of Yahweh's presence. It was a community of hope. And boy, there would have been in, like, this is, this is huge. They've lived under domination of empire after empire, the Romans, the Greeks, the Persians, the Babylonians, the Assyrians. This is the moment when God says, enough is enough. We're going to restore the kingdom to Israel. And it's going to be like the time of King David and Solomon. And Israel is going to be glorious again. This is what they're excited about. This is what they're expectant of. No wonder they shared everything that they had. No wonder that they were animated because this firestorm of God was upon them again. And it didn't matter who you were. It didn't matter what your background was. It was a diverse, inclusive community. It was one with authenticity, generosity, and courage because they weren't unopposed. So when we talk this year about us as a church being a church, a community, um, that is animated by three, four values. I mean, lots of others, but let's just concentrate on four because that's all I can remember. Authenticity, inclusivity, generosity, and courage. We see that right at the start. Right at the start, it was a multinational, diverse community within Judaism. And it was all animated by this firestorm of God that we call the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, I invite you to do with us what you did with that community very back then. I invite you to uh, allow us to be a community of people that are authentic with each other, that are inclusive of everyone, who are generous and who are courageous. Would you animate and inspire us with the firestorm of God in the same way that you animated and inspired those first Jews. We thank you for the hope that we have in you, Jesus. And may that hope be more than just a cliche. May it be much more than just a cliche. I just want to invite you just to ask, uh, ask Jesus for what you hope for. Whatever you need, wherever you need hope right now, ask Jesus for hope in that situation. Jesus, we offer our prayers to you. Whatever we need, would you meet that need? We pray in Jesus' name. Yeah? Amen. Amen is a word that we use to say, yeah, I agree. So if you agree, you might want to say amen. Amen.